Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. David. Jan. You've got an experienced author here. And, and has I've been got here a before. Newbie. Oh, a newbie. Robert C. B. Oh, yeah, I think he's nearly worn out the chair. <laughs> it's a very familiar room. <laughs> and we love having you back. But we're going to invite, uh, welcome Lee Kaufman. Good Hello. morning, Lee. Thank you for having me. Now, what were you like as a teenager? Did you do what your parents told you to? Did you always act as your parents expected you to? <laughs> or were you rebellious? <laughs> Leo Kaufman's one of the contributors to the book Rebellious Daughters. So... How many daughters are in this book? <laughs> okay, so I'm also a co-editor of the book uh, alongside with Maria Katsonis, and we have 17 contributors all together in this book, and including Maria and myself. So how did the book come about? Uh, this was a fantastic idea of my co-editor Maria Katsonis. Maria um, grew up as a rebellious Greek girl. <laughs> in fact, her memoir is called Good Greek Girl, but this is a well, personal interview. Her, yeah, 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 about yeah. that book. Yeah. 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 She wasn't, was she? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so our memoirs uh, sort of came um, apart from each other very closely. First was mine about uh, called The Dangerous Bride, which was about being non-monogamous, which is also a sort of rebellion if you think about uh, social taboos. And then Maria's came out and, we so- and Maria sort of said, well, you know what, even though our backgrounds are very different, I'm Greek, I'm gay, you're Jewish, you're very much uh, straight, but um, we do actually have something very big in common and this is our bringing, so being rebellious daughters and uh, that's how the anthology came about and then Maria asked me to come and join her so that I can help her with sort of um, soliciting authors and uh, editing the book. The authors, they're such an array of backgrounds, mm. aren't they? You oh, mentioned yeah. uh, Jewish and uh, <laughs> your own, uh, oh, and Maria's Greek, but there's, oh, Chinese, Greek, Korean, Australian, Indian, Muslim, Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> <laughs> and also the ages are very different. So we have contributors in their 20s and then we have Marion Halligan who is in her 70s now. Mm. So we really wanted the, as broad range as possible, gay, straight, bisexual, you name it. <laughs> well, there's the expect- expectation that daughters are dutiful and obedient. Good girls. So what is it that makes these good girls rebel? What do you think? <laughs> Was there something in common? Oh, well, first of all, the expectation is there, but the reality is that girls are thinking real as much as boys. And I think, and the, sort of, I could see it when we were soliciting, uh, when we were asking um, uh, writers to contribute to our anthology, they, almost everybody had some story to tell. Um, I think rebellions can stem from many, many different reasons. But you, may, you just said before girls, and that's very interesting because when we think about rebellion, we do tend to think about girls, about being teenagers and rebelling. But what have we discovered is that both from our life stories, Marie and I, and also from the stories of our contributors, is that rebellion is a very sort of uh, varied phenomenon. And there's a lot of, some of our contributors are Caroline Baum, for example. She mm-hmm. rebelled against her parents when she was in her 40s. She was a good girl until she was almost 40. Um, But there's many, many um, ways to rebel and many, many sort of reasons why um, our contributors rebelled. It can start. So I rebelled against religion. Maria rebelled against sort of conservative Greek expectations of her to be 
um, a good girl and, you know, to marry, to have a degree, to etc. Um, other of our contributors rebelled against um, things like, uh, for example, very sort of stifling uh, upbringing in terms of sexuality. Chrissy Nino mm. wrote a beautiful, beautiful essay about being almost like a prisoner in her grandmother's house. And I can go on and on, but oh. I'm sure you have other questions <laughs> you want to ask me. <laughs> it's a very uh, good preface to the book too, which was written probably by, by you and Maria. And it, it really put, you know, it's sort of the whole idea about females growing into puberty. Mm. Their sexuality has always been considered a dangerous, wild territory, mm. which to is be tamed. a parental <laughs> duty to tame. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and quite often that's one of the first things they do is they rebel by wearing different clothes you know, yes. to their parents or yep. moving out of home or, yeah. Look, some of the first lines, 17 short stories, some of the first lines, which I'd like to read. I shared a bed with my mother until I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not at my mother's divorce proceedings. Mm, fantastic. I wasn't that kind of baby my mother wanted. And I hate you, I hate you, slam! <laughs> my eldest closed her bedroom door so hard. Mm. But this opening line... During one of my mother's recent visits to Australia to see me, I suggested we go to the Sexpo exhibition. <laughs> Who was that contributor? Ooh, I wonder. <laughs> yes, that's sort of uh, quite compatible with the previous book I wrote. <laughs> that, of course, is Lily Kaufman. And uh, why did you want to shock your mother so much? Ooh, well, um, I grew up sort of in a very religious household. My parents practice Orthodox Judaism, which means my mother wears a wig and my father uh, prays many, many, many times a day. And so is my mother, actually. Judaism is sort of that, the kind of religion which is very pervasive. If you adhere to this, you have so many rules to obey. And so um, one of the sort of, uh, and of course, as any religion I know of at least, um, the attitudes to sexuality, particularly to female sexuality, are very restrictive. Female body, as we were just discussing, Mm. is a very tamed territory in this religion. But in my particular case, the conservatism in our household in terms of sexuality was coupled with another type of conservatism because my parents and I were all born in the Soviet Union. And in the Soviet Union, it was almost as conservative as Judaism towards the idea of sex. But there it wasn't just about women, it was about everybody. I remember there was an interview in the 1980s post uh, sort of Gorbachev when a woman said on the television there is no, there is no sex in Soviet Union because nobody spoke about it. It wasn't in the newspaper, it wasn't in the radio, it wasn't in the books, uh, it wasn't in the movies, it was always censored. So having grown, so my parents sort of uh, embodied, my parents sort of held this really sort of attitude such as sex is, it does not exist and if it does exist, it's filth, it's dirty. It's dirty. Yeah. Get, get Goddess. That's right. That's right. In my essay, I I sort of quote my mother saying it to me repeatedly in Russian, goddess, goddess, which is filth. So I... I never actually stopped rebelling. <laughs> and the and in this particular story that I tell in the book, I was uh, in my uh, mid-30s already. 
And I decided when my mother visited me that I'm going to exact my revenge for all those years when I grew up thinking sex was goddess and I'm going to take her to sex for. Look, it was the most fascinating read. And Thank didn't you. it surprise you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and especially, especially the surprise, the, the ending of what your mother bought your father as a souvenir. Mm. And we'll leave that just oh, yeah. exactly there. <laughs> but this was you know, a surprise, a real surprise. So... This act of rebellion in another um, contrib- by another contributor, it says, "I would not be her." That's what, what mm. she was rebelling against. Mm. So all of these daughters actually find their own uh, identities. Sometimes they weren't really um, strong enough to rebel themselves, mm. but they really enjoyed the rebellion that their siblings did. And mm. we saw that with Marion Halligan's story. Who... And Jamila's Rizwe as well, yeah. yeah. That's right, both stories. And then other times, there's two times that there's the mother and the daughter alone in the house. Mm. Um, when there's just the two of them in the house, Michelle, Michelle Law wrote mm. this one, our lives were inexplicably linked. We knew each other's habits fought regularly and depended on each other for company and counselling. And just how she got her freedom was really a lovely story. While Susan Wyndham grew up with her mother and once she got older, it was her mother who, who rebelled nearly, wasn't it, mm. who went out and got a new man in her life. And so Susan thought, well, if she's going to get a new man, I better too. <laughs> <laughs> it's very scary to deal with your mother's sexualities, both Susan and I discovered oh. in different ways. <laughs> now, on the program, we've had a few of these women in with the books that they wrote, mm. they've written. Maria uh, Katsanas was one of them. Chrissy Kneen, now she was in here just recently. By being rebellious, they had a story to tell, which often fueled their own writing. Now, mm. Chrissy Kneen, she broke the taboo of her grandmother, a little bit like you and your mother, you know, you can't talk about sex, <laughs> <laughs> do everything else but sex. Mm-hmm. And she ended up writing the most funny sexual romp. The most delicious ones, yeah. <laughs> and I'm a big fan. Of Holly White with yeah. the organism going yes, through. Yeah. <sighs> Blue hair. And of course there's uh, Maria Katsanas. Yeah. And we've discussed her about being Greek. But yeah. from her book, the dresses her mother wanted her to wear were not for me, just like boys weren't. Mm, fantastic essay, isn't it? I love yeah, it. It was very clever. And then um, Rebecca Stafford, Bad Behaviour. Well, she's been into this program here. Telling in, in Bad Behaviour, it was telling about her fourteen, her as a 14-year-old mm. um, at um, a school, an outback school, and being being bullied but also being a bully. Mm. And, uh, and the purpose of writing is to make your mother and father drop dead with shame. Yeah, that's not her quote. That's the quote she quotes in the essay from another novelist. And she sort of argues against this quote as she goes with the essay. Yeah, Rebecca Starford essay is really interesting. It's a bit of a sort of uh, um, unique um, essay in our book in that it's more sort of, it doesn't sort of much tell her story as it explores the idea of who owns whose story in memoir and what is it like to write about people you really love 
uh, but also have very difficult relationship with. Because really, when we write memoir about families, memoir writing, as any other type of creative writing, it's all about fractures, conflict. And so when we write about our families, there will be some conflict we'll explore. And so Rebecca sort of asks really cleverly in her um, work, who owns my story? Do I have the right to tell my own story? Because I'm not, an, you know, and no writer, no memoirist is an island. Our stories are so strongly linked to stories of other people. And the hurt, you yeah. know, it's, it's looking at that yeah. hurt. It's looking also, you know, that, that whole quote, when you have children, I hope you'll understand the pain <laughs> you will put through. No, and there Can are... I actually say something about this topic? I mean, one of the reasons why Rebella's Daughter, the topic of our book is so dear to my heart, apart from having been a lifelong rebel, which I still am, unfortunately, I also think our society needs more rebels because particularly in modern Australia, in this generation, there's a lot of sort of... Um, this is a real Zed guest about, I'm going to be my child's best friend. I'm a mother too, to, to boys, but, so I'm not sort of talking about this in the, from a distance. Uh, but I think our children need us to be not so much their friends because I think if you don't rebel, even in the most sort of liberal families where, you know, I think still rebelling, at least in the, during your teens, is, uh, is a real milestone in terms of... Um, Practicing not taking anything as a dogma, not sort of thinking for yourself. That's what Jane Caro found out, wasn't mm, it? Absolutely. That, great asset too. Yeah. And what I'm you, very biased. What are you going to do when your children rebel? Well, I, I tell you what, my three-year-old is already rebelling against me very, very profoundly. His favourite word is still no, even though he's three, he's not two. And I love him for that. Although it's tough. It's <laughs> How tough. long is that love going to last? <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> uh, crush him. <laughs> well, my mother still loves me, and at 43, I still rebel. Uh-huh. <laughs> so well, here you go. Yeah. Jo Case, she, she rebelled against being conservative and caring, only to discover that she really was. I I know, I know. <laughs> we all end up being like our parents, aren't we? The cliche. Leah Kaminsky, you know, her father was a tailor and she went out and, and would have nothing to do with clothes that she made. But then she she found that her profession, profession was sewing. Sewing other people with their skin. That's exactly right. <laughs> surgeon. Yeah, yeah. Look. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I know Aww. you did a big job of editing as well. You know, you yep. sort of had to take those stories back to the contributors. and Yeah, and I think uh, that's, well, that was a really interesting process because um, – it's really, I mean, I've been writing about my family for years and years and years, fiction and non-fiction, all my books, they feature, unfortunately, for them. But um, uh, in uh, I found this also with our contributors, because all of them are professional writers, who most of them have written more than one book already, and they all particularly particular struggled with essays. Some of them said, look, that was the hardest essay I've ever wrote, oh, because, right. and that's why they needed uh, support, in, uh, you know, in terms of editing, because it's so difficult to write about those wounds. Because families are wounds, you know, even the best ones. <laughs> well, and I've been speaking with Lee Kaufman, editor, contributor to Rebellious Daughters, published by Ventura. Thank you so much, Lee. Fascinating Th- read. Thank you for having me. And now for a change of pace. Can a would-be actor make a good detective? No. Now, the, no. The, well, the, the author has already answered the question. I've written the answer is probably not if we follow the career of the uh, main character in Robert Gott's uh, new novel, The Serpent's Sting. So, Robert, welcome back to the comfort 
comfortable surroundings of 3CR. Thank you very much, David. I do feel very comfortable here. This is like an annual visit. An annual visit. Well, that, that sort of speaks to how prolific you are with, with your writing. But I must confess, I, I wasn't as familiar with this series, <clears throat> the William Power series. I know. I was shocked. Oh, I'm sorry. I must apologise. But... Who is William Power? He's the naked man. No, not quite. Although, no, he does get naked in this. He always gets naked, David. I know William. Fortunately, uh, for the listener, he is Robert Gott is now fully clothed in the studio. But who is William Power? Well, William, when I wrote the first William Power novel, which was set in Maryborough in Queensland, um, it was it was the, the very first one was based on a story that I grew up with. Uh, in because Mar- I, I come from Maribara. This is the power of elocution, David. <laughs> uh, I come from Maribara. And we grew up with a story about a girl who disappeared in 1942. She was 21, and she was found three weeks later in the town's water supply, dissolving in the town's water supply, so that everyone in the town had been drinking her and washing their hair with her and gargling with her and brushing their teeth with her and... And I always thought that story was fantastic. And so I thought this would be the good basis for a novel. And then I needed uh, some kind of detective to solve this. Uh, I'd already decided to set it in 1942 because I think that is a fascinating period in Australian history. And both my yes, sets was, of novels... Yes, I was going to raise yeah, that, but we'll get we'll to We'll get that. to that, we'll get to that, yeah. So I, I didn't want to create... At that stage, I didn't want to create a detective because I didn't want to learn anything about detecting. And I didn't want to learn about the courts and the justice system and policing and forensics and all of that. And I needed someone who was mobile. So I came up with the idea of an actor. And an actor is perfect because actors, God bless them, have a highly specific talent. But they are not necessarily the sharpest knives in the drawer. I am a man given to healthy introspection, but even if this hadn't been the case, I would have still, I would still have had to acknowledge in the court of self-awareness that I was temporarily without direction. As an actor, I was resting. As a private inquiry agent, I was resting. My love life was resting. Only the first of these caused me real grief. I was an actor, and I'd been thwarted in the expression of this noble art by circumstances and by the fog of ignorance and indifference that had settled over Melbourne since hostilities with Germany and Japan had begun. I needed the stage, not the applause. It was never about the applause. The way a t- teacher needs, needs pupils, a dentist needs teeth, and a surgeon needs a rumbling appendix. I pondered this as I tried to sleep after the revel- revelatory dinner. <laughs> Goodness me, it's like having William Power in the room. <laughs> yeah, but, so he's that kind of actor. He's not even a very good actor, he's, well, really. He's, he's, not, he's not really very good at anything. He wants to play Shakespeare, but you've got him playing what? <laughs> well, he gets, he gets a job by accident as a pantomime dame in, in, in the... <laughs> In the Christmas, uh, the Christmas pantomime season, at the uh, Princess Theatre of Mother Goose, which was actually on at the time, so I just co-opted that, and I thought Will would be a great. Well, he wouldn't be a great pantomime dame, but it would be a humiliating thing for him to do, as he says in in there. It was a humiliating sideshow to the war. 
Um, but also then, uh, you have... Where did you get all your knowledge about actors? Because it's, it's, rather, <laughs> it's rather true to the point. The performance of Mother Goose on the following day, Monday the 21st of December, was a good one, and I was pleased that Brian was in the audience to see it. The only disappointment was that Geraldine hadn't returned from Puckapunyal to play the fairy. Sophie, her understudy, was barely adequate. There was an amateur edge to her playing, and the crisp and rounded vowels weren't yet effortless. Half her mind was given over to putting into practice lessons learned in elocution. At intervals, she had the temerity to tell me that I was acting too broadly and that I was diminishing her more nuanced reading. As she was speaking to me in the wings, a little grimace of distaste crossed her undeniably pretty face. A person with a more fragile ego than my own might have been wounded. I was, however, well used to the neuroses of actors and actresses and recognised in her complaint that she was simply giving expression to the threat posed by one actor to another. It was the threat of a competing talent. Crouched in the psyche of all actors and actresses is a hungry demon who feeds on the insecurities of its host. <laughs> Where did you get this insight about actors? Because Jan and I met backstage. Yeah. Uh, Look, I like actors and I, I do I like actors and I, I like the fact that they are you know forgive me in the company of two actors but, but you guys are the most neurotic people on earth well we adopt another person's character to substitute for yeah but also own. you've got to go out on stage every night and every night is a is a tightrope act mm. so every night you can fail and you fail in front of a whole lot of people and I find first of all the desire to do that just frankly bizarre and the courage to do that is extraordinary, but it does create a kind of interesting yeah. neuroses a, a, in, in actors. A challenge. Yeah. Um, some see it as intellectual. Some people I've seen actors absorb another character. That's right. Uh, it's, a, it's a really peculiar kind of, uh, forgive me again, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really peculiar kind of narcissism. Well, it's true. Actors crave affirmation. In a, yeah, in a way, um, that acknowledgement. But it, as you say, it's probably not applause. It's, it's a recognition uh, in some yeah. ways. But we should move on <laughs> rather than condemn actors but these books these books all come with a sub a subtitle called a william power fiasco that's right because everything he touch touches just turns to crap <laughs> he's not but but he is he is a man without malice and i think he's quite witty but he is uh, he just can't get anything right. So all of these books, all four of them in the series, they kind of unravel. <laughs> well, this is what I wanted to get to, the, the structure of the story. It's not like there's a murder that we have to investigate. No. It, it evolves yes. in many ways. Yes, because that's, that's his life. He stumbles through life and he stumbles upon crimes in which he is inevitably implicated because of his own incompetence. Yes. He need not be, but he ends up being implicated. And then because he's implicated and becomes a person of interest to the police, he feels like it's up to him to solve it just to get himself out but of trouble. But every plan he tries to put in oh, place comes... appalling. But you've got <laughs> a range of other characters. Well, just the background which, uh, with which the novel starts. His mother had been um, having an affair um, with one Peter, yes, uh, Peter Gilbert. Peter Gilbert. Um, and this sort of sets everything in motion. The discovery of this um, sort of affair in 1942 would have been 
shocking. Well, it was shocking to Will, but if you in, in the previous books, which you haven't read, David, in the <laughs> previous <laughs> typical actor. Um, <laughs> In the previous books, we discovered that, yes, he discovered they were having an affair in 1942, but his brothers knew about it for years. It's just that Will, because he's so solipsistic, Will had not noticed that his mother was having an affair for years. And also, then another thread then, in talk, talking about being unaware, his brother Brian, who's yep. part of the intelligence community yes. uh, service, has a remarkable ability to cross-dress. Which he discovers in book three of the William Power fiasco, which is set up in the Northern Territory when they're in a concert party entertaining troops. But again, um, William's not uh, really aware, and the book ends then on... Uh, oh, don't give the ending away. I'm not going to give the ending away, but um, that sort of uh, interesting insight into, or potential... Which would suggest that the reader knows. Oh, yeah, the reader but, is. But, but William's still blind. No, William's got no idea. That's the challenge of writing these books because they're written in the first person. Yes. They're written through Will's eyes and through his mouth. And um, we have to know things that he doesn't. Even though he's reporting on what he's seeing, he's not actually seeing what What's we're going seeing. On. Yes. That's just the challenge of writing this and kind of language, book. And the language, William. Employs. I knew, even as I said this, that this was craven sophistry. <laughs> you, you could almost get a sense of this, this pretentiousness of this character. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you've then got a sort of master criminal, shall we say, one Albert Taylor? Yes, yes. Um, He's really a petty criminal rather than a master criminal. This isn't a world of master criminals. This is a world of petty criminals. But he seems to have... He's a very smart man. Yes. That's for sure. Um, yes. So, um, where did I have it? Um, on 257, Albert Taylor pointing... Albert Taylor raised the gun, levelled it at my head and pulled the trigger. The bullet went where it was supposed to go, over my shoulder and into the wall behind me, passing first through a small oil painting that I'd never liked. <laughs> So he's, he's in danger of his life. But, um, no, no, no. He's an aesthete. He's an aesthete. There are things that offend him, even in moments of high crisis. And, well, there are these... He yes, has standards. These moments of crises. <laughs> uh, but Albert Taylor and the machinations going on there, yeah. because we have uh, a few dead bodies hanging around that sort of appear. Yes. Uh, uh, John Gilbert, the son Yes, of his putative... Um, Stepbrother. Stepbrother. Yeah. Uh, it dies yes. and is found in a cemetery. He's found in Melbourne General cemetery. cemetery. At the foot of that. Have you been into Melbourne no. General Cemetery? Oh, there's this amazing statue of a winged angel holding a sword. It's huge. Right. And that's where the, the body is found at the foot of that. And then uh, an American soldier, Private Anthony Durbin, is found in William's bathtub. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hell, yeah. you're going to have to read to find out. Um, it's a, it is a farce. It, it's yes, a, it's a, a, farce. a farcical sort of <laughs> happenings and goings on. Um, so we get this compounding in a conventional way of more bodies and, and yeah. growing, and also the disappearance of one Geraldine, yes, um, etc. So William actually has sex in this book. Oh, yeah, that's w weren't there? Unusual. Wasn't there sex in the others? Well, it which probably he, might explain he why never, I hadn't read them. You know? <laughs> he never gets that right either. Uh, there, there is, but it always goes awry. Well, he, he claims she was satisfied, doesn't he? Well, of course. Why wouldn't she be? <laughs> She's having sex with William Power. But, <laughs> But then, who, um, uh, Tyra, who compares himself to Tyrone Power? Yeah, he believes he looks like Tyrone Power. 
an actor, as he says, you know, a limited ability, but... <laughs> and he doesn't. No one else thinks he does, only he does. And then, um, also then, getting back to that point we raised earlier, 1942. Yeah. Fascinating. You've got lots of these sorts of references, the uh, American camps, and I loved the one about Presbyterians um, <laughs> because um, Peter Gilbert had been having an affair with uh, Agnes, William's mother, and did Peter Gilbert's uh, his wife... Catholic. They're Catholic. Yeah, they were Catholic. Did his wife mind? No, she didn't hate him. She reserved her hatred for the <laughs> Presbyterians. <laughs> Which, if you understood the era, oh, yes, there was a visceral the, hatred oh, between was. the Protestants the, and the Catholics. Yeah, the sectarian so stuff. So the was... fascination with that era. Yeah, I am fascinated by that era. What? I mean, apart from the well, bodies decomposing because, yeah. in the water yeah. supply. Partly because it is um, sufficiently distant from us to seem exotic as modern readers, and yet as sufficiently close to paradoxically seem strangely familiar. So you don't have to actually work very hard to create that world. There's a lot in it that's familiar. But, I mean, the detail that you're putting in yeah. about, you know, having to open up the cinemas on Sunday to cater yes. for the American yeah. troops... Yeah, which actually didn't last very long because the Presbyterians won that one really? and they shut them down, yeah. Oh. So are we going to get football on uh, Good Friday <laughs> and things like that? That sort of attitude, yes. the social attitude that yes. sort of extant at the time. Yeah. Um, and that you have to be sort of familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, which is, is fascinating. Look, Robert, unfortunately, we're going to have when, to end the interview. Uh, <laughs> it just flies so quickly you when you're having fun, especially <laughs> when you're having fun. But uh, the serpent's sting with sort of um, references to Shakespeare in, in many ways. The uh, author is Robert Gott and the publisher is Scribe. So, Robert, you are wonderful. once again, thank you very much for coming Thank you, in. David. Wow, that was a most interesting program, wasn't Very it? Very entertaining. <laughs> so everybody, listen in next week. Hopefully we'll do it again. Indeed we will. <laughs>